As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and I thank you for joining us. Now, if you're a regular listener, you might be wondering what happened to my voice. Well, it happens occasionally. You lose your voice, owing to the fact that I stayed up very, very late last night to watch the Philadelphia Eagles upset the evil empire in a phenomenal game, I thought. But of course, it always seems better when you go out and win. Nick Foles is your Super Bowl MVP. So there. And I even felt a tiny, tiny bit sorry for for Tom Brady. No, no, not at all, actually. Felt a little bit sorry for Bill Belichick. But then, you know what? You made your mistakes. Uh, and it's tougher to win when you're not cheating anyway. Right, with me in the studio today, I, it's a real treat because with me is former Crystal Palace and Leicester City striker, James Scowcroft. And down the line, speaking to us from uh, his leafy gaff in lovely Rippenden, uh, drop by whenever you like, it's somewhere in the north of England, it's the chief football correspondent at the Times, Ollie Kay. Later on in our debate, we'll be talking about uh, the dismissal of West Ham's head of recruitment, Tony Henry, uh, after comments he made about African players. Uh, we'll be touching upon the atmosphere at Old Trafford. And again, I have to remind people of this because it is extremely significant. James Gocroft here is perhaps the only former professional footballer of any note that I know who actually pays for his own tickets. Mark Albrighton, unless there's a big Aston Villa fan. Doesn't he play at the same time? Not all the time. He goes to watch Villa a lot, though. And does he pay for his own tickets? Yes, he does, apparently. Oh, that said, there's one place to start, and that's at Anfield. It's Klopp versus Pochettino. It's Liverpool versus Spurs. It's the kind of place that sent uh, Martin Tyler into ecstasy yesterday. Well, I'm going to begin with you because I watched this game. I thought it was pretty much breathless. Uh, it was exciting, and you, you know, this is the way Klopp plays. Pochettino could have played, maybe maybe he's a little bit more pragmatic at times, but he chose to go at it. At the end, everybody went nuts. Are you going to join in this fantastic advert for the Premier League type argument, or are you going to say it's a fantastic advert for a certain type of tactical vision in the Premier League, but it was also a game filled with all sorts of mistakes? It was definitely full of mistakes. Um, it was it was a lot of mistakes being forced by good attacking play. But but yeah, there was an awful lot of mistakes from Spurs in the first twenty minutes, and and, and obviously Liverpool in the second half were sort of clinging onto a lead, which is something they just don't seem equipped to do. Really, I, mean, I, I think Liverpool holding a one goal lead is not something that they're bound to excel at, and and, and they drop deeper, and, and and you could you could criticise that. You could criticise the way Spurs. Started the game, uh, which was full of errors and with a sort of questionable shape in midfield and questionable sort of pegs in right holes in, in, in midfield. But for all that, I mean, I, I think most of the games that we sort of celebrate in the, in the Premier League are these sort of 
breathless 100 miles an hour games which um, which tend to be full of mistakes and, and and this was one of them and it was it was um, no it was, it was one where you know sitting in the press box at Anfield the game ended and you were thinking god you know where to start with that because there was just you know so much went on and uh, you know not just the controversy not just the sort of um, strangeness about the way decisions were reached but the incident the drama the the, the quality as well it was it was it was a fantastic game Ollie you, you were at the game um mm-hmm. and there's a slight point I would like to to pick up really so I watched Liverpool and I watched Klopp and Klopp is is very very passionate on the sideline and that's great when when Salah scores to go 2-1 up he goes charging down the the line to, towards the cop 30 40 yards maybe a little bit further celebrating and, and that's fine I get all of that he's celebrating with the crowd for me Liverpool have got a problem with their game management so they've got they've gone 2-1 up they've got 4 minutes to go and instead of losing his emotion and and getting carried away with everything is that not a time for him to manage the game manage his players from the sideline and get everybody to focus because those last minutes those last few minutes is all about the Tottenham going to come at you they're going to have the ball they're going to try and make an error they're going to put the ball in the box is that not where you get your team to focus for four minutes forget the celebrations yeah you can do it for a few seconds but get your team organised and get them switched on because I look at Liverpool and I look at Van Dyke where he's just he's just not concentrating he's not aware of what's lamellas around him he's not aware of certain situations and I see that with a few Liverpool players and the managers that I've played for you're always very vulnerable when you've um, when you've scored a goal and good managers that I played for the first thing they would do is send a message out to the team focus you've got four minutes left to to win this game concentrate because it will come from a mistake do you agree Ollie, or not no i i, I do agree that there's you know the, 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 the idea of of a manager charging down the such line after a 91st minute goal he's not in control. i mean it, it, it does it does suggest that that you know heads have gone and it's and it's over exuberance and and hearts are, hearts are controlling hands and i think i think liverpool's approach is all about that that over exuberance and and they're not very good at the other stuff the, the game management whether that's because Klopp is is hyper animated on the touchline or whether that's just because of the way they set up or the type of players they have I, you know I, I think it's really hard to say I, I think it's 12 points they've dropped from winning positions this season and, and it probably feels like more than they, they did it a few times in the Champions League as well and and you know they, they do have that sort of screw loose don't they Liverpool they can't manage a lead that, that, no. that's their problem and you can't always blame that on the individuals there's many factors in that but one factor is the way that they're, they're managed and the way they're coached I want to talk about the penalty decisions before we um, before we move on the first one Ollie was actually very complicated to some degree until you pick up the rule book I know it seemed to mystify the pundits on, on television there's two separate issues here. There's the conversation, and I think we do need to get into this. We have the transcript here between the referee, Jonathan Moss, and, and, and the linesman, Ed Smart. But in terms of what the rules say on the first one, he's not offside if Lovren played the ball deliberately. And so it all comes down to whether you think Lovren played the ball deliberately. Uh, in our paper, Mark Lattenberg says that he didn't because Lovren's a professional footballer and he would not have played it into Kane's path on purpose. Many, if not most, other former refs and so on who've weighed in on this have said really the, the reverse of that. Um, and this is the conclusion, I guess, that Moss and Smart came to, that, yeah, Lovren may be a professional footballer, but 
he clearly mishit this or hit this in such a way that it was deliberate rather than just a deflection, and therefore Kane is not offside. Uh, is that a fair summation of, of what the rules are? And, and the difference of opinion comes down to how you interpret Lovren? Yeah, as, as, as with so much, it comes down to how you interpret the, the, the laws, and it, which just shows how, how ridiculously ambiguous the, the laws are. And for a, for a FIFA referee or you know, a guy who's just retired, retired or effectively retired as a, a FIFA referee to to have that interpretation of it as, as Plattenberg did is, is I mean it's, it's it's quite bizarre really. I mean, I, well it's not bizarre it, I'm sorry but, but, but Plattenberg is 100% correct this is what the rules are the only subjective part is whether you think Lovren played the ball deliberately or not right? He, he did deliberately play the ball it didn't, it didn't bounce off him he, he tried to he tried to but Clattenburg says no because, and I quote here, a professional footballer would not have played it into Kane's path on purpose. As he, as he watched Liverpool defend, <laughs> okay. I, just, I just thought Lovren was, was decent yesterday, apart from that. But, um, but no, I mean, the, 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 the rule says a player in offside position receiving a ball from an opponent who deliberately plays the ball, except from a deliberate save, is not considered to, to have gained an advantage. So it's not, it's about deliberately playing the ball, it's not about deliberately kicking it in a certain direction. If it's not clear, if Kattenberg has one interpretation and if John Moss has another, and, and it's just, it's, it's mad that there is that grey area over it. I, I, I mean, the clock was coming into the, into the press conference and he said, you know, unless the rules change, that's not outside. And, and you think, well, no, uh, the, the rules seem to, and it's seemed to suggest that, that, that he was onside. There are various referees now with columns in papers and Mark Kattenberg does ours, and I generally agree with him on this, these issues, but to be honest, I I totally I totally disagree with his interpretation of that because I thought it was onside, and then I thought the one thing where Liverpool might have had a point was that I felt Harry Kane might have dived with Come that. on, the thing and centre forward you're talking about. Well, exactly. Not some um, dodgy foreigner. Stop it. I, I, Stop it. I, I, well, I, I'll have no more of this. This Kane um, diving discussion. That's really inappropriate. But I'm, I'm not. I'm not certain about that. That that dive. But that that was my was my feeling. It was not a popular view in the in the press box, and, well, and it's so. not one I would be certain of. But it but it was. Um, it, it certainly looked like. Um, it certainly looked like there was certainly a possibility of a dive, and I, and I, and I find it very hard for people to say. It wasn't a dive. The interesting thing about this interpretation of the decision is the conversation, which, again, I thought this was strange because we so often see referees and when they consult with their assistants, you know, they kind of cover their mouths or whatever. Here it seemed to me as if they seemed to invite the cameras over so we know exactly what was said. And I'm tempted. You're a bit of a thespian, aren't you, Scoey? Uh, shall we read this conversation? I'll play smart. You'll be Moss, okay? <laughs> if you had a script there, you could join us too. Do you, Ollie? Uh, I, I do. Who do you want me to be? Why don't you be Ericsson? So I'll, I'll be smart and uh, and Sean, and you're, and you're Moss, and you'll be Ericsson. You only have one line. And this is, it's not Punch and Judy. This is the script, isn't it? it it's, it's real. This is exactly what listeners. it says. You ready? Here it goes. All I need to know is, did Lovren touch the ball? I don't know. Well, if he's not touched the ball, it is offside. So you're chalking off the penalty. It has to be offside if Lovren has not touched the ball. He touched it, ref. He did not touch the ball. You know what I'm asking. I need to clarify. Has Lovren touched the ball? If he has, it's a deliberate action, and therefore it's a penalty. If he is not, it is offside. I have no <laughs> idea whatever. 
This is Moss, not me, by the way. I have no idea, whatever. Love and touch the ball, to be honest with you, Martin. Have you got anything from TV? I'm giving the penalty. Now, all right, first of all, what strikes me is it seems to me as if, like, Smart is Moss's boss here, and he's kind of telling him what to do. Moss is, I think, is considered a pretty decent referee, <laughs> but he's kind of bossed around by his assistant. 24 hours on, and we're still debating it, and we've seen it time and time again. To be fair to these two guys, they've got to make a big decision. But this, have you got anything from TV? That's not so cool, is that, Ollie? Well, my mind immediately goes back to the um, to 2006 World Cup final and, and, um, like and, and the feeling that, that Zidane was sent off with, due to a fourth official flam, you know, highlighting something that was that, that had been seen on a on a on a screen. And this was, you know, 12 years before um, VAR might be brought in. This wasn't a you know this wasn't a VAR trial game yesterday. And people get very upset by the idea of, of, of VAR being used in some games and not others. Now, if it's being used on the sly, then you know, people are, are entitled to ask, you know, what's going on? Surely you're not meant to do that. But I don't know. Are, are we? Do I have a problem with it? I don't. I don't, I don't know that I have. But I, I'd just like people to be a bit more honest about the process. If, if VAR is being sort of used by stealth, uh, they. They should just admit that you know if the fourth official is helping with things that he's seeing on a, on a on a TV that that he's got a half an eye on on the bench, then 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 the Premier League, PGMO, everybody needs to be honest about that and not and not let the, you know allow the embarrassment that will bring kind of all kinds of conspiracy theories and um, all that nonsense. Moss was being as you know told his best about it yesterday. And, I, I love that this guy does not have a devious bone in his body. But, but, People are going to ask questions of, of the Premier League, of PGMO, of, of the FA about this. People need to be upfront about it and right. clear about it. I won't spend too much time on this, but uh, obviously <clears throat> Harry Kane missed the penalty. Then Mohamed Salah scored a tremendous, tremendous goal. Um, by the way, we should give some love to Wanyama, also an absolute rocket of a goal. And then came the second penalty, which I thought was a prototypical dumb penalty. Lamella may have been offside. Uh, Mark Clattenburg thought he was offside, but I think it's pretty obvious as it didn't occur to Virgil van Dijk that, you know, he was offside. Um, it seemed to me that what van Dijk did was was kind of stupid. Can you explain his mindset? Scoey, have you done things like that? I've done many things like that that are stupid, but I just... You've given away penalties in the fourth minute of injury time? Um... Because you no, switched off, that. No, no, because no. you were following your manager who was celebrating down the time. <laughs> no. Listen, you disagree with me, but I know I've got a point. <laughs> it's lack of awareness, lack of it is lack of concentration. Well, this is the most expensive defender in the world you're talking about. Well, whatever he is, it's a lack of concentration in a crucial, crucial moment of the game. He's got no idea where Lamella is. You know, his body shape's wrong. He's turned off. He's probably thinking about the game that have just won. And it's a penalty. You know, he comes on his blind side. Lamella knows what he's doing. I think it's good play by Lamella. And he just lashes out and he catches him. Doesn't catch him a lot, but he is a penalty. Right, now this season with your subscription to the Times and the Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League, Champions League, Europa League and the FA Cup as well. Now, just £3 for a three-month trial. In addition to all that goodness, you also get our excellent content, including um, our Under the Skin of the Game feature, which 
uh, I quite enjoy, especially when George Culkin uh, writes it. Now, he didn't write it this week. It was you, Ollie, who wrote about Duncan Edwards this week. Also very interesting. Not quite George Culkin, but still. Ollie, what was your favorite goal of the weekend in the Premier League? There were four outstanding sort of long-distance goals. Danilo, Lamina, Izquierdo, and Wanyama, which would be very hard to separate. So you go for a different type of goal completely, which would be Mo Salah's goal, you know, the second goal, deep injury time, the one that sent Klopp darting down the touchline. It was it was ridiculous. It was one of those ones where there seemed no way through, and he wriggled through, and I... I, I tweeted at the time that it was a Messi-esque goal and uh, you know people go oh my god take that back how could, how could you compare him with Messi I'm just comparing the goal to the type of goal Messi scored because it was it was that sort of impossible dribble the uh, balance the the, the the audacity to sneak it through that that, that tiny space I thought it was an absolutely brilliant goal Scoey I'm, I'm assuming your goal will be a Manchester United goal right? It is <laughs> you, Funnily enough I've come for Lukaku's goal simply because I think it's a very, very good goal. ahead of Alexis Sanchez's missed penalty and then... Uh, it, it was away, a tough right? decision, close, yeah. a very, very cool and I uh, didn't sleep well last night thinking about it but I plumped for Lukaku. I think he's uh, I think he's a very good player, Lukaku and I, I did a thing for a Manchester United podcast this week and said he's uh, how... I personally think he's had a very good season. Wonderful ball in by one matter and all centre-forwards are told get across your man at the near post and front foot finish which you take it with the, your nearest uh, foot I thought it was a very good goal and one I enjoyed but he's not as good as Martial is he? no Arsenal 5 Everton 1 it's an absolute mauling now some people um, like me and I still stand by it but hey when the facts change my opinion will change will argue that this wasn't some kind of genius transfer window from Arsenal because there's a lot of questions raised. Aubameyang, Lacazette, Mkhitaryan, Ozil, how do the pieces fit together and blah, blah, blah. But that said, Ollie, when you're playing a team that sets up in this completely, what I thought was a pretty nonsensical sort of 7-0-3 formation where the front three guys are all in there because they can run rather than play, it becomes a heck of a lot easier, right? And then you get Aaron Ramsey scoring a hat-trick and Mkhitaryan with three assists, and and life is good. Well, yeah, I mean, Everton were were awful. It was one of the worst performances I've seen by any team in the, in the Premier League this season, I don't, I don't think. Performances um, we've ever seen. One of the most unallardized performances, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, like, yeah, it's like it wasn't him out there. It's like they, they, they put some sort of clone out there who... You know, I'm not saying Allardyce is always brilliant, and he's often not. But but you can generally see what he's trying to do. Whereas this was terrible. You can, and 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 generally the way the way his teams play is is you know being very aware of risks and being very aware of of leaving gaps, and and it was very very naive and very very you know spineless really as a performance, but. It was Arsenal were very good. I mean, Arsenal. You sometimes see a team score four times in the first half without playing really well. And, and I, I thought Arsenal, Arsenal's first half performance was really, really good. They were full of ideas, full of full of energy, full of um, confidence. And um, yes, Everton definitely made it easier for them. But when you've got Mkhitaryan in that mood, you've got Özil in that mood, you've got Ramsey breaking from midfield and. Aubameyang um, making the type of runs he he made and 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 being the kind of threat he is, I thought, I thought it was a really good performance. I'm not at all of the view that you know a swallow makes a summer as, as far as Arsenal are concerned. I think they will blow very hot and cold 
for the rest of the season, I suspect, because it, it looks very individualistic what they've got. It looks it looks like there's not really a, a kind of balanced team there yet. But that was a very good performance. So you, you're not you're not convinced. You 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 remain a skeptic on this point. Are you also a skeptic on whether Wenger was the main driver of these signings and this transfer strategy? Uh, I am skeptical of that. Yeah, Aubameyang and um, and Mkhitaryan are, are players he has liked before, but he, and and has, and has watched before. But then again, isn't everybody? You know, that, that doesn't every every time a, a player makes an impact another team that we hear that that, that that Wenger knew of him and Wenger Wenger wanted to sign him. But um, there is a different dynamic now at, at Arsenal with with Sven uh, Mislintat and with a guy um, who's come from Barcelona as as a director of football. Raúl. Definitely not director of football. Definitely not director of football. He's just director of football operations. Awesome. Don't worry. Um, but I, I think the, the dynamic there behind the scenes is changing. I think it's moving to, towards a, a post-finger world. And, and um, I guess um, that might be scary. It might be exciting. But um, I thought Saturday's performance was, uh, was exciting. Scully, let's get, should, we, should we pick on, on everything some more? Because I, I'm thinking... If I'm Farhad Mashiri, who bought 49% of Everton, definitely with my own money and nobody else's money, yep. you just spent £21 million and more in wages to sign a centre forward in, in Tosin. Your club, and okay, these guys were signed before you, but but um, Rooney and Sigurdsson end up on the bench, and these are two guys the club brought in at vast expense over the summer. Presumably they were bought in by a director of football, possibly your mate Steve Walsh, who signed these guys, and then signed you, Big Sam, and presumably you spoke to him and said, like, these are our biggest assets. You know, are you on board with this? I don't understand. What, what's going on? We have a piece from, from Paul Joyce, <clears throat> quite a salty, I'd say, comment piece, where he makes the point that, that Everton are in danger of losing their identity as well. And it's just really bad. He's, uh, yeah, he will, give me some hope for Sam. I mean, Sam said it was a pathetic display, so he obviously acknowledges it. It just, you know, Everton seems to be the club that everyone thought, oh, this could be the next, you know, a really good football club. Well run over the years, you know, stands for a lot of good stuff. And all of a sudden, it just, it's turned into a car crash, hasn't it? And, you know, I felt for a little bit for, for Ronald Koeman in the summer because I thought he took the blunt of the blame for a lot of mistakes that happened. And, you know, you often see that in football. And, and Steve Walsh surely has to be accountable as that. It always made me, uh, you know, at Leicester, he's director of football, but chief scout, whatever his role. But it was always next to Claudio Ranieri on the, on the TV on, on match day. So I wasn't quite sure how many games he was watching. And then we sort of, he's gone to, to Everton now and the, the money that they've spent and the 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 method or the or the plan or the lack of the uh, plan. And it's just, this is what you get. This is what, you know, you go to Arsenal with a setup and... A back three of of Michael Caine, who's just been a poor sign in. Magnala comes in as well, poor sign in, and then you've got Sigerson and Rooney, are probably your two best players. On Magnala's a poor signing. The guy just the guy just got there. I mean, it's a bit mean, right? Oh, I mean, <laughs> watching him at the weekend, you can't argue anything else. Yeah, but can he wasn't you? bad at City. I mean, well, the second time round, he was all right. Let's talk about a guy who left, and I know uh, all of you seem to have this. Um, I don't want to say obsession, but perhaps. Um, you care a lot about the fate of young English players. Adam Ola Lookman. Mm. Now, they sign him for a ton of money. He scored that ridiculous goal last year. I remember, I mean, I watched it and I said, like, whoa, 
And, you know, especially because he looks like he's about 11 years old, which he's not really. And now they sent him on loan at, at Leipzig, which I, I think is probably a good place, and you'll get you'll get a good education, good life experience. And he goes and he scores in his debut. Now, Allardyce says that because they have Walcott and Balassi, who between them cost $50 million, um, there would have been no room for Lookman, and sending him on loan was, 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 was the right decision. Do you agree with that? I mean, he's only started four Premier League games in 12 months under under three different managers. And, and you know, with them bringing in Walcott and with Balassi being back, I don't think he was going to get more football uh, unless one of those guys was going to be left out. I would say that Balassi, since his injury, has not looked like a player who, who is, is ready to to be what Everton needs to be at the moment and what Allardyce wants him to be in. And, and maybe... He should have. He should be starting ahead of of Lookman. I, I don't have a problem with the Walcott thing because you know they've signed him with a view to to playing him certainly. So, um, and I, I don't have a problem particularly with with the idea of players who are not playing going away on loan and 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 having a good opportunity to to develop. But it just looked in, in the case of Lookman, it, it looked it looked like well, he might give you a bit more than Blassie at the moment. So 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 why are you doing that? And and He's a really talented player, but it just seems that Allardyce wants to go with with the experience at the moment. And I think when you look at the midfield and you look at um, Schneiderlin, I mean, Schneiderlin, who looked so good at Southampton and then so disappointing at United, and even more disappointing at Everton. I think it's 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 bizarre. So you know, the, the, the experienced players often seem to be the ones that are letting Everton down. So I would say that that. The best thing Allardyce could do, in some ways, is, is to, to to build around the, you know the, the, those good young players. Um, I mean, he started with John Joe Kenny the other day, but Lookman and, and Tom Davis and, and while you're at it, Mason Holgate, who's another Cal young Cal player. Yeah, to, to be yeah, fair, yeah. they've they've given Calvin Lewin a good a good run, haven't they? They're, they're, yeah. he's, he's the sort of the the only one really at the moment of this new golden generation of English players that is getting genuine game time. Mm. What what I would say is. If I was a manager, I'd always have a couple of young players on the bench. I'd, I'd always do it. I can understand not starting him, but to bring him on, I, I just think he gives young players give you something different. You know, they almost have that naiveness of sort of, you know, they they don't have the fear. Like you say, the, the senior players at the moment are the ones letting them down. They're they're the ones that seem to have this fear in their game, where the young players don't possess that. The train is now approaching. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Love the game? Then don't miss The Game Daily. It's your lunchtime update from football's finest writers, and it's only at thetimes.co.uk. We're going to have too many debates this week, and I know we're all excited. One, I'm assuming we'll all broadly agree on, possibly the other one too. I want to start with um, Mourinho compared the crowd at Old Trafford with the crowd at Portsmouth a few years ago, which was very intimidating, and and it was a small ground, and they made a lot of noise. Ollie, help me, because you're more of a Mourinhoologist than I am when it comes to reading the tea leaves, but... I kind of took it as almost like a throwaway comment, like, oh, I'd love it if the fans were louder, but 
because, you know, we saw what a small, passionate crowd in an enclosed atmosphere can do. But I think on this occasion, Mourinho wasn't trying to to send a deeper message. But it seems to me that a lot of the media have interpreted it that way. We have we have some some dude, some United fan, you know, complaining about the atmosphere at Old Trafford in the game today. We have Syed, Matthew Syed, uh, um, saying that, oh, well, clearly the lack of uh, passion at Old Trafford is because of you, Mourinho. What's your take? What, is, is this a throwaway from Mourinho? Or is it one of those things where he's trying to send a message? I think Mourinho chooses his words so carefully and so precisely that, that I'm, I'm never inclined to see anything as a, as a throwaway comment that he says. I mean, it's and and also, it's not the first time he said it, and he even put it in his his program notes earlier in the season where, where he was saying, "Oh, I, I hope our I hope our noisy fans turn up today, unlike the other night, or, or, or something to that effect." And so he, he's he's clearly got a be in his bonnet about this as he had at Chelsea, and I think as he had at Real Madrid, and he's got a point um, in the. Old Trafford isn't isn't you know on, on on a Saturday afternoon game against modest opposition. Old Trafford generally isn't there, but neither's Anfield, neither's the Etihad, neither's the Emirates, neither's Stamford Bridge. And, Don't and, this and, Anfield. I, I, but it's no, I mean Anfield's great when it's loud. It's the best games and and, and the big games and the action-packed games rather than your typical sort of Saturday three o'clock kickoff. The, the criticisms of atmosphere are reasonable but whether they should be coming from a manager of a club who you know one of many clubs who who seem to sort of go out of their way to dilute atmosphere people should be listening to the fans on this issue i think fans are frustrated by numerous factors about ticketing about pricing about uh, location of fans about what you can do when you're sitting in your seat should you stand, etc. There are so many other issues, and, and to just simplify it as, oh, you're, you know, the fans didn't make much noise today. I think is a bit insulting when those fans are playing through the nose, and and in many cases, and it's not about United and Mourinho, but in, in many cases, not really being greatly entertained. It, it's there are so many other different issues to it in terms of what clubs generally pursue in terms of atmosphere. It's. Um, it, you know, it, it's hardly surprising that you don't get, right. get amsu when everybody, everybody's on the phone and everybody's being okay, encouraged to log on to the Wi-Fi and tweet their pictures and blah blah blah. Use your hashtags of the match. Okay, all that kind of thing. there's truth in it, but but there's so much more to it than that. Hey, you you, you hit it on the head. The game's changed and so on. Scoey, are you still a season ticket holder? Um, <clears throat> I have a joint season ticket. Because you are yeah. a season ticket holder at Old Trafford. You've been going for many many years. We've got a piece here from a guy named Andrew Kilduff in, in the paper, who's the co-founder of the Stretford End Flags Group. Are you familiar with him? I know the chap, yes. Okay, you know Andrew, perfect. Um, he says, it is a middle-class game now. Hasn't it been like this for a long time, and maybe Andrew Kilduff shouldn't be complaining, and in fact, it was probably a lot like this during Sir Alex's heyday as well, after the turn of the millennium when United were beating the stuffing out of everybody. And United fans were a lot noisier on the road than they were at home when they were infiltrated by the prawn sandwich people and the guys on the phones and the Norwegians and all this stuff, right? Or am yeah, I wrong? It, it, no, no, no. You're you're very correct. The best atmosphere yes. at Old Trafford recently has been under the David Moyes era when they were, you know, it was going horribly wrong and I think it sort of stirred a lot of pride and passion, really. This isn't a Manchester United problem. It's, it's English football's problem and it's something that is... 
getting worse and worse and worse. And like you say, if you go to the big games, yeah, you'll get an atmosphere, but the general, all the top clubs, maybe Palace in the Premier League is an exception, the atmosphere is extremely poor at these games. It is so sanitised now and, and, you know, supporters, and I can speak from experience, there's so much that you can't do, you can't stand up, you can't do this, you can't do that. And it's a huge, huge problem. I was at the Emirates, uh, I was at Arsenal, two, three weeks ago when they played Palace at home to the 4-1 up and even the Palace fans sang a song when they joked, if Arsenal sing, we're on the pitch. It, it was like a, oh, a yeah, library. But it's, like, right, but if, yeah, it's really not fair at the end. Of all the clubs you mentioned, you pick Arsenal, which notoriously, I, I, I think, yeah, is the I've lamest. I've been to them all and it, and it is... Okay. So you're not saying Arsenal's worse than everywhere else? No, no, no. It, it's ev- okay, everywhere. Fine. Counter-argument. It's just sort of the argument Matthew Syed makes. Okay. But... Part of this has to do with the change in the demographics of the fans. Yeah. Part of it is to do with the fact that, even though the Premier League hates it when I say this, but Premier League supporters are the oldest in Europe. Yeah. Because partly because it's expensive, and partly because it's a bunch of people who are growing older, and because the kids don't go to games because they're they're, they're watching on their social media or or playing games on Twitch. Um, all these things put together means that you've got more people with deeper pockets going to the games and. They probably don't want to agitate and they don't want to fight and they don't want to stand and they don't want Scoey to get up and stand in front of you shouting, singing the Martial song. And all of this pays for Mourinho's wages and Martial's wages. And maybe he should just accept it and get on with it, right? Because Ollie, I've been to football in this country in, in the 1980s, in at the end of the 1980s, admittedly, but still, the 1980s. It looked nothing like it does today, but you know what? Everybody was terrible except for Liverpool. I mean, really, really bad, bad players. Am I wrong here? Um, what do you mind? I mean, I mean, seriously, you no, go back and we'll no, go, no, you can go on YouTube because, because and, and watch and watch some of this. I mean, I I remember somebody telling me about what a phenomenal player Paul Davis was. A very nice man, by the way. Right? I don't understand. Paul Davis wouldn't even be playing in your beloved championship today. Right, and you're nodding along, which means you agree with me. Not because he's a bad person, but just because the game has changed. Sorry, go ahead, Ollie. Well, do you want me to answer the, the thing about atmosphere, or, 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 or to defend the honour of Paul Davis in, oh, in, in an era when when England when England had you know Brian Robson, uh, he was always like, hurt. You know, Glenn Hoddle, even someone like Neil Webb. Never mind Paul Gascoigne. You know, in, you know there were lots of international standard players it was it was i don't think it was as bad as you're suggesting but obviously there's a lot of terrible players anyway the 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 atmosphere issue um you were i mean what you are you suggesting people should just live with it i i I think that what should be happening i'm asking is is that the price we're paying for success basically is it the price that you want you want to hang on to your best stars rather than in the 80s when people like like ian rush left the country because he could make more money elsewhere, right? Because the club wouldn't pay him. Today you have the money to hang on to your equivalent of, of, of Ian Rushes or, or Harry Kane or, or whatever. You have the best foreign stars. You've got this incredible uh, product packaged uh, all over the world. You don't have the perception that hooliganism is always around the corner and some national front guy's going to stomp on your head. Ah, uh, you don't. You certainly don't have issues of overt racism. You, all of this has changed for for many many reasons, you don't have stadiums that are fire traps. Um, is part of the price you're paying for this 
a loss of atmosphere. And I think that's what Side argues, and that's what I'm throwing to you. I'm not taking a position on this, by the way. It, it is a price we're paying, but whether you need to pay this price to that extent, I mean, wouldn't it be an even better product if, in addition to the, the safest stadium, in addition to the better players, etc., there was also a really good atmosphere and and it seems that i mean clubs don't need to clubs don't need to squeeze every pound out of every fan for every seat a lot of the clubs the bigger clubs in particular now get less and less revenue smaller and smaller proportion of revenue from from managers because they make so much commercial they make so much from tv um they don't need to to, to bleed the fans dry they they need to, in my opinion, they, they need to invest in atmosphere, see it as a, yep. if, if this is what it takes for them to, 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 to take it seriously, then to see it as a commodity, to see it as something that would improve the product Ollie, and improve. The, the, the problem you've got is that the, the executive people that run the game have got no idea really how an atmosphere mm. is created, how it's, I, I've been to uh, Paris Saint-Germain totally a couple of times this year and the atmosphere is superb, but it's, it's orchestrated, it's coordinated, it's... You have ultras there, though. Well, exactly, it's coordinated. There are, have, there are four or five... fan groups. Here, here in England, when I, I mean, I think it's different. I think Anfield is different at Anfield, different at Palace. But at most clubs, whenever you see something coordinated, you know, there's a reason those banners and those flags it's look so pristine. Because it's a club that pays... Manch- <laughs> That's what I mean. If you go to a lot of the French clubs... You you will go to PSG. There are four or five people that are in these crow nests that are high above that have speakers. Yeah, but those are ultras. That's what I'm saying is that those are organized fans which come with a whole raft of other they're, they're, issues. Every club in the Premier League has got organized fans, Gavin. No, but right? they don't. They don't have they ultras. Do. They do, they do. With, if you bring up the ultras on the continent, you have to take the good with the bad. Now, the ultras can go and march into Nasser Al-Khalifi's office and say, like, we want buses for this and we want you to pay for them and we don't want this steward stewarding our area because we don't like him and if this guy causes problems, we'll deal with him, not you, and so on. Now, I'm pretty sure, I could be wrong, you know Andrew Kilduff, I'm pretty sure Andrew Kilduff does not have Ed Woodward's number on speed tile and can't she, no, doesn't that, show up that, at Ed Woodward's that's, house that's, and tells Ed Woodward what to do. That's my point I've just made to Ollie. The executive but, people running the game have got no idea about an atmosphere and about going to games and and the actual match day experience. This other thing, I don't know that there's much to debate, but I I think there are a couple important things uh, to be said. There's a man named Tony Henry who until recently was involved in player recruitment at West Ham. He was let go after making remarks um, in an email, I believe, talking about how he didn't like signing, quote, African players because they cause problems when they're not in the squad. I don't want to get into the issue of how they got them to say that on the record. It wasn't the cleverest thing. But what really struck me about this is, stereotypes are a big part of of football. We talk about Germans being disciplined and Latinos being fiery and and whatever else. And then part of that is based on nurture and culture. Uh, Klopp himself did a piece this weekend and talking about how like, you know, in German youth academies, the kids go to school until they're they're 16 or 18 and that comes first and the football comes second. So they're less obsessed with money and blah, 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 blah. Right. So that's got a formative thing. So if I were to generalize about a guy coming from German football, there'd be some validity to it because there'd be some sort of general shared experience. What I have a big problem with, with what this guy says about African players is that it doesn't make any sense. And he, of all people, he's got African players on his team. Pedro Biang is an African 
player in the sense that he's of African descent, but he was born and raised and came through the ranks and is a product of Spanish football and is Spanish. Same thing for Angelo Barna, who is Italian and is a product of Italian football. Arthur Masuaco is a product of French football. The other dude, there's a Swiss guy, Jmielson Fernandez, is, hello, the guy's black, he's of African descent. Yes, but he was born and raised in Switzerland. So he's a product of the Swiss environment. I just thought this was so poor, and I've heard stuff like this before from, from agents who pitch guys to players and so on, but generally there's a certain logic to it, whereas this guy certainly gives the impression that he was doing it all based on, on, on skin color. Does this make any sense to you, Wally? No, it doesn't make any sense at all, and particularly when it's, um, you know, you, you look at the West Ham squad, which, you know, you've just gone through it in, in some detail, and, and there's people like Ayu who, who have gone and, and um, funny enough, been um, moved out in this in this transfer window. But they have signed a lot of African players over the last few years. And for a guy suddenly to be saying, oh, they're the problem, uh, you know, they cause mayhem when, when they're not playing, I think it's, it's alarming, insulting, incredibly crass, um, 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 it's it's just ridiculous, but it also just smacks of the kind of flip flopping that you get at a club. And for, for him to be saying that African players are the problem, well, look at West Ham. You could look at any number of players from any different number of countries over the last few years and say that that, that they have been a problem. And I, I don't think you know uh, Martin Samuel did a did a very good piece the other day. Um, about it and we're saying well it doesn't seem to be about where you're from it's it's where you're at and i think he's exactly right i think west ham is a is a club that does not have a good culture and it it seems to bring out the worst in a lot of players and uh no matter what the nationality but i don't think for a minute that the number of african players they have has been a problem never mind the problem uh and i think it's it's alarming insulting distressing to, to hear a guy say that you you operate in in this space would you say that it is fair? Obviously, you, you judge every case individually, but does it help to make certain assumptions about people based on where they were raised and the type of education, the type of football education that they got? But that's completely independent of of race. I think it's an awful comment that he's, he's come out with, and I think you have to... I think Ollie's just hit the nail on the head there, and I, I think it's it has nothing to do with with race i think it's the environment at west ham that's that's probably causes that if there is any problems as well so i think you have to you know go go that extra mile to now football is it disappoints me when this this happens because football actually is a very very multicultural society and probably doesn't ever really get the the credit it deserves for the way it's um portrayed really and and of all, you know, we have so many different nationalities come to the game, which which is fantastic. I, I just think clubs, and I know know a lot of clubs do. They go out of their way to to make people welcome. They go out of their way to make families welcome. Um, and there should just be one criteria when you sign a player, and is, can, you know, can he make your squad better? Time now for some uh, quick hits. Manchester City are held by a stout Burnley side who. Uh, I thought, anyway, played very well, despite some big absences. Ollie, is it all about Sterling's miss, or is there more to it than that? And please don't tell me you'd rather talk about the fact that Pep only named six subs and what a stain it is on City and his reputation. Uh, you're right. I, I think the the reaction to that was uh, a bit strange and a bit excessive. I think other 
managers have, have done that this season at, at times. West Ham did it a, a few months ago. I don't remember any brouhaha about that. But um, the Sterling miss at 1-0 up was, was a really bad miss. And it did feel like at that point that it might come back to haunt them because they seem to um, have to be running out of, of legs in that game. And, and Burnley were doing very well. So I thought a fair result in the end. Alexis Sanchez propels Manchester United to a 2-0 win over Huddersfield as Mourinho drops both Paul Pogba and your god, Anthony Martial. Scoey, I assume you're hoping this is a temporary thing with these two guys, especially Martial, being left out. Uh, the cream always rises to the top, Gab. The, ba- the lad Martial will be back, don't worry about that, scoring goals as well. He's having a great season so far. Um, I was at Wembley on Wednesday and Paul Pogba was awful. Um, it's the worst game I've seen of him in a United shirt and he has been good recently, so it's just a little bit Mourinho keeping everyone on their toes. Don't panic. Swansea get a point at Leicester City and they're now unbeaten in a month, including wins over Liverpool and Arsenal. Ollie, were you one of those people who said they were doomed? And what do you make of the turnaround? I think they did look doomed, but it, it seems to be similar to um, last season when you know a manager comes in in January and, and just makes everything that was going on before look, look like it was remarkably silly and, and, and has them looking like a competent top-flight team again. And it is going to be ridiculously tight at the bottom of the table. It, you know, you, A manager can come in and improve a team and, 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 and they might still go down, but Swansea suddenly look good. It's a great argument to relegate more teams. Riyad Mahrez is left out by Claude Puel uh, in that very game, following rumours that he handed in a transfer request to move to City on deadline day. Scoey, do you actually believe that City were willing to spend that much on him? And can you explain why he's sulking now when there's nothing that can be done? The transfer window is closed. Unless he wants to move to China, where it's still open until February 28th. No, I just think the whole situation is a mess, really. Um, and Riyad Morris isn't coming out with any credit. I think whoever's advising him, he needs to, to get rid of them. I think Leicester of man management, the man management of the situation is very, very poor because... It's quite obvious that that Mares is is looking to to move on to a top team. Uh, he has it's the same every transfer window, so they need to come up with a plan of what to do because it's just the same every six months. And also, I think it's it's not great by Man City unsettling a player on on transfer deadline day that they. Can I jump in here on this, Ollie? I was away. I didn't get a chance to report this. Do we know for a fact that this story is is real and accurate? What the City bid for him? Yes. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. They did. No, no. no nobody's denying. Nobody's denying that, that, that they moved for him. Why? Doesn't make any sense. Why? Well, the, this is so stupid. Well, Honestly. because they have so many players. I, I, I agree that they. I agree that they didn't need him. It would have been luxury signing. But I, he's I not suppose. a pressing player. He's not yeah. that good. It's a lot of money. I, I, they have financial fair play. I mean, come on. It's Riyad Mahrez we're talking about. And 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 you know there is a, a need there to to accommodate some of the younger players. Um, or integrate some of the younger players who, you know, a lot of them are in, in attacking positions, and and you know that would have been a, um, uh, that would have been yet another obstacle in their way. But 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 their squad is is, uh, it's not a thin squad, but it's not numbers wise, it's not as as big as some, and and it is stretched a little bit by injuries, but it just looked very short term right, to me. But 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 the reason City's squad is stretched is because there's limits on the number of foreign players over the age of 21 that you yeah. can have. That's the only yeah. reason. So if they are going to spend 65, 70 million, they're better off spending it either on some English guy or on more kids who, who you know, fall in that under 21 um, category. Anyway, yeah. Crystal Palace are held by Newcastle United. Uh, Ollie, 
Would you like to praise Rafa's genius in the face of adversity or complain about Christian Benteke's finishing? Uh, I wouldn't kick a man when he's down. So I'll, I'll talk about the uh, I'll talk about um, the job Benitez is doing. I, I think if you look at the that Newcastle squad, it looks so ordinary quality-wise, and, and you know, and they, they they haven't come up with a sort of set bounds that Brighton and Huddersfield have come up or Bournemouth have come up in the past. It, it's a, it's a, a an ordinary group of players who, who are sort of in danger of existing under a cloud at Newcastle. And Benitez has got them organised, spirited, and they look ordinary, but but I think he's doing a decent job. Southampton roared with a 3-2 win away to West Bromwich Albion as Jack Stevens steps into common dispute between James Ward-Prowse and Sofiane Buffal. But if you haven't seen this, there's a free kick to Southampton. Both people want to take it and up steps Big Jack and says, right, you're taking it, not you, go away. And he made the right choice because uh, Ward-Prowse then uh, uh, scored on the free kick and Buffal was the first guy to go over and uh, congratulate him. Scoey, as an ex-pro, did you freak out when players squabble over free kicks? Um, if I'm honest with you, I can't really remember too many times um, it happening. The managers I played were very, very uh, organised and this this was all done weeks in advance in training. There was no sort of, are you going to take it or am I going to take it? I just find it very unprofessional. So your managers were clearly more organised than were, they were Maurice on the Pellegrino. Yep. Yeah. And in the last few minutes of uh, injury time, we were all switched on. There you go. Mickey Adams, thanks you. Gab, one for you. Fascinating fascinating piece on uh, Paris Saint-Germain and the French media. Yeah, it was very good, wasn't it? Is it a sign of things to come? I, I hope not in some ways, in the sense that uh, what's going on right now is uh, the venerable uh, French newspaper that keep being attacked left, right, and center by other journalists. And you know how rare it is for people in the media to really go after each other, being accused of dishonesty and writing false, knowingly false stories surrounding Paris Saint-Germain. But then there's this whole other sort of alternate new media that's come up, a Twitter account called Paris United, uh, which is also a website, which is actually an anonymous account. Uh, and they broke some huge stories uh, relating to PSG, which raised all sorts of questions in terms of who's behind it, what's really going on. It's uh, it's an interesting sort of, you know, microcosm of where we could all be heading and I think also uh, an obvious parallel with the real world in terms of uh, where people get their news from. That's all we've got time for today. Many thanks to my guests, James Scowcroft and Ollie Kay, and another plug for Ollie Kay's piece on Duncan Edwards. Um, I wondered whether you could have seen anything new about Duncan Edwards, but I think Ollie's managed to do that. Now, remember, it's just three pounds for a three-month trial if you want a subscription. You can search The Times online in addition to um, what I think is very good content from The Times. You also get content from The Sunday Times. Uh, and you access highlights of every game in the Premier League, Champions League, Europa League, as well as the FA Cup and who doesn't love the magic of the cup we're going to be back next Monday after the North London Derby at Wembley and uh, before that remember if you're up in the great North East Alison Rudd will be hosting a special live podcast from Newcastle Ollie will be there as will uh, Newcastle manager Rafa Benitez as more importantly I assume so will George Culkin right yep there you go you can hear all this on Friday. It's going to be up. I, sadly, I can't be there because um, I'm going to be in Miami. Ha, ha, ha. You guys will be in Newcastle. Sorry. Uh, anyway, 
I'm going to be back next week. Uh, and please do look out for our special live podcast, game podcast, on the road from Newcastle. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. 